Well, good morning. Good to see everybody here today. I want to start off with a story I heard uh, quite a while back. I thought you would enjoy it. The story is about an overweight man who went to his preacher in kind of a deep depression. He said, Pastor, I just can't seem to drop this weight. I can't even get a date with anybody, and I'm just feeling really down about it. I feel like such a loser. The pastor says, I think I can help you. You be ready tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock when your doorbell rings. So 8 o'clock the next morning, his doorbell rings, and he's expecting to see his pastor on the other side of the door. So you can imagine how surprised he is when he opens the door and sees this beautiful blonde in a really sleek jogging suit. And she just says one thing to him. You can have me if you can catch me. So she takes off running. He throws down everything, and he starts running after her, and he's huffing and puffing, and the run turns to a jog, and he only makes it about two to three minutes before he is completely exhausted. Well, she keeps up this routine for like the next five months. Every morning at 8 o'clock, the doorbell rings, and she says, you can have me if you can catch me. That guy lost 115 pounds in five months. And you know what? He almost caught her the second to the last day, almost caught her. So you can imagine when the next day comes, and he's thinking when that doorbell rings and I'm going to start chasing her, I'm going to get her. So the doorbell rings, he opens up the door, and it's a different woman. It's an overweight woman, and she says to him, the preacher says, I can have you if I can catch you. <laughs> now there's actually a point to that, okay? Hear me out for a minute, okay? One of my main tasks as the, the, the spiritual leader of this congregation is to try to discern from the Lord and from his word, what are those things that we as a church need to be running after? What do we need to be pursuing? What do we need to be chasing as a church so that we might be the kind of God-honoring, Christ-exalting church that is healthy and makes Jesus proud? And so today, because we've started that mission we are starting a new series today called Fellowship. And you're reading that right. It's not a misspelling of the word fellowship. The word fellowship is kind of a made-up word. And what we're seeking to do is learning together what does it mean to answer the call of Jesus when he calls every person, come, follow me. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that look like in our lives? Because here's what I know about Jesus. He has very high expectations of those people who say, I'm going to follow you. Very high. Jesus did not bait and switch. He didn't say, hey, come follow me. And then after they started following him, oh yeah, by the way, here's what this entails. No, no, no. He laid it out from the very beginning. He told people to count the cost because following him could be very, very costly. He told people up front, if you follow me, it could be very, very controversial. If you follow me, it could be potentially deadly. He laid out his expectations very, very clear to those who would follow him, and he had high expectations. And in that same vein, I'm convinced that those people who are followers of Christ you are entitled to have high expectations of whatever church you would call your spiritual home. You can have high expectations of us and what we are about. 
In the same way, though, the leaders of this church are entitled to have high expectations of you who call this place your spiritual home. So, today, we're going to do something that I'm just simply calling revision. We're going to take the next 30 minutes or so and talk about what we are about as a church So that will help pave the way so you understand where we want to go as a church. So, remember, Jesus has high expectations. That's key. Let's not have any of this business about Jesus just being some wimp who wants to go around and give out free hugs to everybody, okay? He's got a calling in your life and in my life, and he set the bar very, very high. I'm going to go through that bit by bit by bit over the next several weeks together, okay? But let's revision for a little bit, okay? Let's talk first and foremost about our vision as a church. Our vision as a church is glorifying God through changed lives. Scripture makes no bones about the fact that you and I and everything was created for the glory of God. Listen to what we read in Isaiah 43, 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Now, what does glory mean? Here's what it means. It means weightiness. It means heaviness. It means prominence or preeminence, okay? So that whoever, sometimes it's a person, or whatever, sometimes it's a thing, whoever or whatever is in a position of glory in your life, that's what centers your existence. And people glorify different things. For some people, money is what centers their existence. Money is what carries the most weight. For some people, it's family or their children. Everything lives and dies by the family, right? That's what carries the most weight. For some people, it's a career. For some people, it's education. For some people, it's power. For others, it's it's the perception of success. But that's what carries the weight in their life. So they make decisions and they move their steps based upon whatever carries the most weight. It's that treasure in your life that you most cherish. And it calls the shots. And according to Scripture... You and I were created in a way where God alone is to be that treasure. That God carries the most weight. God is most prominent and preeminent in my life. So when God carries that weight in the life of a person, then guess what? I'm going to love my wife like, like Christ loved the church. Not because it's easy, but because that's what God calls me to do. And he carries the most weight. I'm going to be a man of honesty, and I'm going to be a man of integrity. Again, not because that's easy in the world we live in, but because God carries the most weight in my life, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be generous to those in need. I'm going to be kind to people who aren't even kind to me, because that's the weight that God carries in my life. That's what it means to glory in something, to glorify something. It means to give that weight and that position of prominence in your life to something. Now, let's talk about changed lives for just a moment, okay? By changed lives, hear me out, I don't mean, well, you know, before I knew Jesus, I would just sit at home on Sundays and watch NASCAR and NFL. 
But now that I know Jesus, I'm in the church building from 9.30 till noon every Sunday. That's not a changed life. That is a changed schedule, okay? A changed life is when the reality of Christ and all that he is and all that he offers becomes so real to me that my appetite simply becomes, give me Christ in every area of my life. And the things of this world just don't taste good anymore because Jesus isn't in it. That's a changed life, friends. And God is glorified when human beings change or alter their lives to the point where God now carries the most weight and is dictating their life and their thoughts and their steps. Now, let's talk mission. If the vision is ultimately what we're wanting to get to, that we want God to be glorified through changed lives, the question is, how are we going to get there? And here's what our mission is. Making and growing disciples of Jesus. Now, a lot of churches spend a lot of time crafting a mission statement. But here's what I know. Our mission statement has already been given. Jesus gave the church their marching orders 2,000 years ago. It is not up for debate. It is not for up discussion. It is not negotiable. And here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 28. Here's his words. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So Christ's final instructions to the church are very, very clear. Go and make disciples by baptizing them. Bring them into relationship with me. But that's just the starting point. That's not the finish line because there's more work to do yet. You have to grow them. How do you do that? Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And most of this series for the next several weeks is going to be about the second part of that mission, the growing disciples of Jesus. Now, let's talk about our core values as a church. The undergirding principles that are of central importance to us as a body of believers. Here's core value number one. The Bible is our final authority. All right? I don't care what the world says about the word of God. I don't care how much truth it continually becomes relative in our culture. Hear this and hear this loudly and clearly. Here at Bachelor Creek, we hold the Bible in the highest regard as our source of authority. Not culture, not tradition, not a religious hierarchical denominational headquarters that kind of tells us what we can believe and tells us what we can do. No, the Bible alone is our final authority. That's why, folks, every time we gather together, in my sermon, it's an attempt to do one thing. It's an attempt to bring the lives of everyone in here into the pattern that Scripture calls the people of God to live by so that your lives can be affected and transformed and changed by this life-giving book. That's the goal every Sunday. Here's what we read in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture 
is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I'll be honest with you. Up until about six, seven years ago, I was pretty naive. You know what I actually thought, what I believed? That every place that you see that has a cross on the building and calls itself a church is teaching and preaching the word of God. I was dumbfounded, honestly, frankly, just again, showing my naivety. When people would come to this church telling me about the church they came from, where God's word was never really read from, never really taught, never really openly preached, it was more of just a little homily or just a little talk or something, just kind of give you warm fuzzies. You know what that is, friends? That's not a church. That's a social club that asks for money. That's what it is. Because anytime the saints of God gather together, the word of God needs to be held high. Amen? So the Bible is our final authority. Here's what Isaiah 48 says. The grass withers and the flowers fall, meaning everything in this world, you know and I know, is temporary at best. But the word of our God endures how long? Forever. And because God's word is eternal, it trumps everything. All right? It does not submit to us. We submit to it. I, I don't ask God's word. I don't go to the Bible to read it and say, how can you conform to my life? I go to it and say, how can my life conform to what God has called me to be? All right? So, the Bible is our final authority. Core value number two, we value community. Okay? I'm going to see here if you can see what the key theme here is in Acts 2.44. All the believers were... Say the word, together, and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Do you see the underlying theme here? What is it? Togetherness. That the church, the body of Christ, is a group, it's a family, and we're all heading in the same direction, the same destination, and guess what? Collectively, you help me and I help you to get there. That's what we mean by community. Let me flesh this out a little bit so you can understand at a more practical level. One of my roles in my calling as a pastor is that I am invited into people's lives during some of the, the darkest, most tragic times that they experience. And oftentimes when the dust settles from those experiences and those moments, people will tell me, I've heard it over and over again, Solomon, I can't even begin to tell you how much the church has meant to us over the past several weeks or several months. They've given us strength, showered us with love, They've been there to help us put one foot in front of the other when we didn't know if we could take another step. We just don't know how people can go through the things that we've went through without the church. And here's what they meant by that, okay? Let me interpret that for you. Here's what they meant. 
One, people from the church showed up to their house. Two, we prayed. Three, we cried with them. Four, we brought a casserole. That's, that's what that means. When people say, the church was there for us, we went there and we prayed for them, we cried with them, we brought them from some food, thinking, you know what, here's at least we can help. We can't take away your pain, but we can bring some food so you don't have to worry about cooking. There was no magic words that were said by anybody, no, no stellar prayers that immediately just made all the pain and hardship evaporate. You know what it did? You know what, what was the key there? Presence. We're just here for you in any way we can be here for you. That's the togetherness of the New Testament, folks. You know, my granddaughter is six weeks old now. And when it came time for her to have her very first bath, several weeks ago, okay, <laughs> wasn't just recently, several weeks ago, shortly after she came home from the hospital, it happened at our house. And it was a family event, okay? And, you know, a, a first bath for a baby, we all know, can be a little traumatic, a little traumatizing for them, right? Even though it's warm and it's comfortable and you got people rubbing you and scrubbing you, it's a little tra traumatizing, right? So when we took Aislinn out of the water, everybody was eager to help calm her down and get her dried off. Maybe a little too eager, as you can see from this picture. <laughs> we didn't realize the hilarity of that picture until Bella, who was just trying to get a picture of Aislinn, said, I can't see her because of all the hands around her. But you can see that it worked because here's the next picture. There she is. She's calm and cool. Still a little buggy-eyed because it wigged her out a little bit, right? But, but she's much better. Go back to that last picture, Jet. You know what that is, a picture there, folks? That's community. Because someday that's going to be you in that little robe. Sometimes it's been me. Sometimes it's been my hands trying to help you, calm you, lessen the trauma for you, be there for you. And sometimes that's what you've done for me. That's the picture of it right there, together, helping one another in our time of need. There are people who have said to me at different times, you know, Solomon, I'm not a, I don't go to church very much, but I'm a pretty spiritual person. And I think that I can worship God while I'm out walking in the woods or while I'm out hunting a deer, just kind of absorbing and taking in all of God's wonder and grandeur of creation. Or while I'm, you know, fishing on the lake, you know, when it's cool out and the fog's kind of coming up off the waters. I mean, it's just beautiful to worship and celebrate God in that environment. You know, I don't, I don't go to church much, but I, I really connect with God in that environment. I, I agree. Creation is meant to, as we've talked about before, declare the glory of God, to sing God's praises, to make us realize what a loving creator we have. But even though it's beautiful, it's not enough. Because here's what I assure you of. When your day of need comes, 
when you find yourself in a hospital hooked up to IVs and a lot of tests being run, I assure you it's not Smokey the Bear who's going to come see you. I assure you that whenever you've got a family member who's passed or you're going through a hard time and somebody comes to the door with a casserole, it's not going to be a walleye. Do you know who it's going to be? It's going to be the people in this room, the people from this church, the people who you've allowed your life to do this with in a kind of community. That's who it's going to be. In fact, let me just share with you, case in point, an email I received a few weeks ago from Kathy Leland. Here's what she writes. I wanted to tell you how much I have enjoyed your sermon series on encouragement and to let you know that the church family has been absolutely amazing in this area. I have had a ton of encouragement through my cancer. I have received a bunch of cards. People have sent and brought me flowers. I have had many offer to bring me meals or do whatever I needed. I have had many offers to ride along or take me to radiation treatments. I have been taken out to lunch and even had a zucchini bread brought to the house. I have been blessed beyond measure. People text me and ask what they can do. That doesn't even count all the prayers and the words of encouragement Stan has received as well. You know what that is right there? That's togetherness. That's why we value community because Scripture values community in the people of God. Next core value, we are culturally relevant. Now, you know and I know there are a number of reasons for declining church attendance in America. But one of the issues that must be addressed is this idea of relevance. See, many of the people who are polled about why they don't attend church respond by simply saying, I don't attend church because the church doesn't have any value for me. It's not relevant. Now, truth be told, Jesus never told the church, make sure you accommodate culture's definition of relevance. He never told us to do that. But we do have to be asking ourselves some questions. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this. Are we answering questions that nobody's really even asking? I had a man come to my office a few months ago. He'd come to this church at the invitation of somebody, was admittedly very anti-church, just really didn't get the whole church thing, but he was investigating. He was taking a step to see what church was all about. And after being here for several weeks, probably a couple months, he set up an appointment with me to come to my office. And, and one of the things he said when he was in my office, he said, I've been to some churches before, not many, but he says, when I'm at your church, your church is just so, 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 I'm, I'm looking for the right word. And I said, relevant? And he said, that's it. That's the word. Your church is so relevant. And you know what he meant by that? Here's what that's code word for. You're answering the questions that I'm asking. 
that when I leave church on Sunday mornings, I feel helped. I feel more knowledgeable. I feel like things make sense to me a lot more about this thing that we call life. Listen to me, folks. To be culturally relevant, we can still believe the Bible as our final authority. These two are not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand like a hand in a glove. You don't have to throw out one for the sake of the other. And you know who taught us this the most? Jesus. The most truth-telling, biblical, yet practical, relevant person who ever walked the face of the earth. And so we want to make sure that we're a church that's patterned after that, that we're answering the questions that people are really asking. One of my favorite group of men comes from 1 Chronicles 12, 32. Listen how these men are described. From the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. Listen to these men. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. Like these men, we also must perceive the times that we live in very, very accurately and respond to them very, very wisely like they did if we're going to be connected to ministry in our day and our time. So we are going to be culturally relevant in every way that we can. Next core value, we will steward our resources. We are a very, very blessed church with oodles of resources. Many of those, quite frankly, are yet to be tapped into, but they're out here. And when people think about stewardship, when they hear that word, you know what they often think about? They often think solely about money. And while money is part of stewardship, it really goes more than just that. I mean, we want to be faithful with what's been entrusted to us, and we're not going to be indulgent or extravagant with anything. We want to be very conscious of that and be good stewards and faithful for what God has entrusted to us. But you want to know the greatest thing that God has entrusted to us as a church, what we want to steward the best? It's the people. It's the people of this church that God has stewarded to the leadership of this church to be the most faithful with. Let me explain to you what I mean. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, here's what he says. He says, you know, when I stand before the Lord Jesus someday, I can't wait to boast about what this church has done. Everything you've done, everything you've given, the way you've served, the difference you've made, the lives you've changed, everything that this church stands for, I can't wait to stand before Jesus and say, look at them. Here's what Paul understood. He understood that God had entrusted him to be a spiritual shepherd, an overseer of that congregation. And he wanted to make sure that when he stood before Jesus, Jesus could say to him, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'll tell you what, folks. There's so much in here that can be offered that has not been tapped into yet. Your time, your energy, your passions, 
your resources, everything that God has entrusted you with. And what we want to do as a church is make an opportunity for you to identify those things and release them for God's glory. So you're going to be hearing a lot over the next several weeks about these things that we call next steps and assimilation. And here's what that's code word for. That's code word for the people of this church, not just being pew setters, but getting into the lifeblood of this church, becoming ministry partners with us, and together making a difference. That's what that's about. Here's what we read in 1 Corinthians 4 too. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. God has given this church a number of souls entrusted, and we want to prove faithful so that collectively we can all stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, look what you did through us because we simply made ourselves available. And this brings us to the next core value, which is extremely important. Every member is a minister. You know, when Martin Luther and his gang about 500 years ago were breaking off from the Catholic Church and starting what would be later known as the Reformation Movement, one of their rallying cries, one of the reasons why they broke off from the Catholic Church is because of their passionate belief that every person who is a part of the church is a minister. Peter beautifully talks about your role in the body of Christ. Listen what he says. But you, meaning the church of Jesus, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. This goes by another name that you might have heard of as well called the priesthood of all believers, meaning that lay people, not just ordained people, not just people with titles, but lay people have the right to communicate with God, to interpret his word on your own, and to minister in the name of Christ. That's what the priesthood of all believers talks about. And Peter elaborates a little bit more on this when he says in 1 Peter 4, each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve or to minister to others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. You say, well, what's your role then, Solomon? I mean, if it's like our role as the church to serve and to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, what about you and the other leaders of the church that, that carry titles and ordain? Let me, let me share with you that. Ephesians 4.11, Paul writes this. It was he, by the he, he means Jesus, it was Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why did God gift these people with these different titles? For one reason, to prepare God's people, you all, for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. So you see what it's talking about there? It's this cycle, it's this reciprocity, me doing what God has called me to do and you being obedient and willing to say, God, use me in a way that Christ may be lifted up. Last core value and the most important. Love is our greatest command. I'm ashamed to say that this core value was just recently added in the last 
several months. Previously, it was just the first five. But it's ironic how that value that should be most present in our lives, unfortunately, was absent from our list. And you know where we get that from? Jesus. Who, when asked one time, of everything I need to be about Jesus, if I could point my life in one direction, do just one thing, focus my eyes in one area, what should it be? And here's what Jesus said. I'm going to boil everything down for you in just one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We can put all sorts of things in front of love, friends, but when we do, we are in deep trouble because everything that we do, everything that we are should flow out of our love for God and our love for one another. I'm going to be very candid here, okay? So please, all eyes, all ears up here. We as a church can do a better job at this. It pains me to say that there have been friends of mine who've been part of this congregation, not just friends, good friends, who have left this church because they just didn't feel the love. And I can preach my guts out every week, and Michael and his team can belt out the tunes and create an environment for worship. And Janet and Tyler and David and Nate can provide the most incredible environments for the youth here at the church, friends. And while that will attract people, it will not sustain them over the long haul. You know how I know that? People are not just on a truth quest. They are on a love quest. Every human being. When I say the name Madeline Murray O'Hare, how many of you are familiar with that name? Yeah, mostly people from the older generation that I see because she was kind of a predominant figure back in the 1960s. He, she was the notorious atheist who was largely responsible for getting prayer kicked out of public schools here in the United States. Back in 1995, Madeline Murray O'Hare went missing until about a month or six weeks later, her murdered body was found on a Texas farm. At the time of her death, she owed the United States government $250,000 in back taxes. So to kind of try to get some of that money back, the government auctioned off uh, many things from her estate. One of the things that they auctioned off was her personal diary. 2,000 pages of what was going on in the mind and the heart of America's most notorious atheist. Here's the interesting part. Six times in that diary, written in the margins, were four simple words. Somebody, somewhere, loved me. Beneath that tough exterior, that 
God-hating, Jesus-demeaning, anti-prayer shell was a human being just like you and me who was on her own love quest. And I know that every person who walks through these doors on a Sunday morning, I don't care what church you're at, what denomination, which part of the world, they come in for that same longing. Somebody, somewhere, love me. We've heard the phrase before in our culture many times, the main thing is to keep the main thing the what? The main thing. To do that, though, you've got to know what is the main thing. Scripture is very clear about what the main thing is. Paul says in Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In other words, there's no better use of you than to love well. With that, any use of you that's divorced from or separated from love is a wasted life. And I'm not the first to say it. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. If I could speak all the languages of on earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I could understand all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. In other words, what you say, what you believe, what you do, what you give, if it's not motivated by love, it doesn't count. In fact, here's how heaven does math. Anything minus love equals nothing. In other words, if you're wrong about love, you really aren't right about anything else. That's why the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, Paul says this, let love be your highest goal. So before anything else, we want to make sure, we, meaning all of us in this circle, we want to make sure love is our highest goal. And that can be really, really tough. Anybody agree in here? It can be tough. People can be hurtful. Sometimes I don't feel like loving. I want others to love me. My love tank's empty. I think my love tank needs to be filled up. It can be hard to summon in us what we so crave from other people. And I wonder if Jesus in his wisdom, if that's why he said, you know what, when my people gather together, when they come together corporately and they 
elevate me in worship and they listen to the word being proclaimed, I want to make sure that they do something as well. I want to make sure they never, ever, 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 ever forget how loved they are. I want to make sure every time they come together that there's a time and a place in that service where they come before this, this bloody cross and they're confronted with the cost of love that it cost him everything, and it's going to cost us something. That they're confronted with the beauty of love, the awe of love. Wow, look at what he did for me. They're, They're confronted with the power of love. Look what that love, how it's changed me. I was once going in this direction in life, and Jesus got a hold of me, and now I'm going towards him. Look what love has done for me. And that we're confronted with the call of love. This is the one thing a follower of Jesus must never abandon. And in his wisdom, he said, when you get together, do this in remembrance of me. Remember my love for you. And let that give you the power then to go love one another. So that's why each week, at some point in our service, we're going to gather around the cross of Jesus and we are just going to sit as recipients of and as students of love. 